When Antonio Michael Downing set out to write his memoir, he gave himself some written instructions. Tell it plainly. Let the sweet be sweet. Let the sour be sour. Let the truth ring its own bell. This is a wonderful North Star for writing, and one that led to his critically acclaimed book, Sagaboy, My Life of Blackness and Becoming. In it, the Canadian author and musician recounts his childhood in Trinidad and his experiences adjusting to life in various cities and towns in Ontario, in Brooklyn, New York, and out on tour. And he reflects on what he's learned about humanity along the way. I profoundly believe, and this is like cornerstone for me, and my experience has taught me this, but I profoundly believe that the things that make us similar and the same are more plentiful and more profound than the things that make us different. Antonio Michael Downing is one of our country's most talented writers and thinkers. He joins me today for a wide-ranging conversation about his life story and his book, Fatherhood and Masculinity, the crisis between men and women, the culture wars, and why he believes we need more robust public discussion and debate. I'm thrilled to have Antonio Michael Downing as my guest. That's today on Lean Out. Antonio Michael, welcome to Lean Out. Hey, blessings to you, Tara Henley. I'm happy to be here. So great to have you. This book is just so exquisitely written. I know I've told you that before, but rereading it really just so much stands out. I relate to a lot of its themes, so I want to pull some of those threads today. But to set this up, I want to start by reading a quote. This is a story about unbelonging, about placelessness, about leaving everything behind. This is about metamorphosis, death and rebirth about being shattered over and over and reassembling yourself across continents and calamities. This is a story about family and forgiveness and about becoming what you always were. Just so powerful. Take me back to the South Trinidad rainforest of your youth and paint a picture of what that world was like. Hey, well... Well, amen. First of all, I love your radio voice. <laughs> I've been listening to Lean Out for a bit, so it's it's beautiful to uh, be here. And thank you for reading that passage, which is really the an attempt to encircle the heart of the book. South Trinidad, if you can imagine, I mean, really, if you look at a map, Trinidad is tucked into the South American continent. So it's part of the Caribbean. It's an island in the Caribbean, but it's really just like a little splinter off of Venezuela. In fact, if you're a strong swimmer, you could just swim to Venezuela at several points in Trinidad. Although these days people swim the other way, but um, (laughs) we won't get into that. So unlimited rainfall, unlimited sunshine, the trees grow massive. The insects grow massive. The birds that eat the insects grow massive. And the things that eat those, you don't ever want to meet. There are some monsters in that bush. And that's where I grew up, a place of just unlimited fecundity, like just growth, mm-hmm. bursting with life. And I grew up with my grandmother and my brother 
and my adopted brother. And there were always different people because my grandmother was like, you know, she really believed in that New Testament Jesus life. You know, some people are are Christian, but not Christ-like. My grandmother really believed in doing those works. And so I grew up surrounded by people that she was always helping, taking into her house. You know, if you think about Trinidad, British colony. So we didn't have a governor general like they have in Canada. We had a governor. <laughs> so that meant no laws, no voting, no members of parliament, no agency whatsoever. So it's a hard life. And that woman was born in 1904. Mm. So she taught me two things, how to read and how to sing. She taught me how to sing because she was just always singing, mostly hymns. I know the entire Anglican hymn book to this day. And, and she would read her Bible, Psalms, Proverbs, the poetic parts of the Bible. Her eyes were bad at that point. She was in her 80s. And so she taught me how to read when I was like three and a half so that I could be her eyes, so that I could read for her because she still needed her salvation. <laughs> mm. I love hearing you talk about Miss Exley. And I, I want to also speak briefly about your parents. Your parents were like a wisp of smoke that blew through your childhood. I want to focus a bit on your father and on your grandfather, the Saga boy from the title of this book, and ask you what you learned of masculinity from them. Wow. What a great question. Yeah. I mean, one of the big things I learned, and I think, you know, I never knew my grandfather. I knew him in the tales that were told about him, but he had passed away. My dad was alive, but he was never around. And so I learned about him from the tales that were told about him. And as I grew older, they say I looked just like him. So the old folks would double take when they look at me. And I would learn a lot about him by the way they would look at me. And, you know, the very first thing I learned was, look, being a man is about showing up. I learned how to be a man by what not to do, basically, from my father. And, and I love him to this day. I talk to him regularly now because of writing Saga Boy. Mm. Uh, we didn't talk for a very long time, but we talk and we and we found a place of friendship. But, you know, I tease him all the time. I say, you know, I, I can talk to you now because the expectations are so low. There's nothing you can do to hurt me. <laughs> and I'm, I'm joking, but it's a serious joke. Like Miss Exley would say, some things, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. So we choose to laugh. But yeah, I learned about a man, being a man is about showing up, not hiding, not running, not finding a reason to be elsewhere than your duty. Mm. And, and that's a hard thing. That's a hard thing because it takes courage and it takes commitment. And I didn't learn until many years later when I was playing basketball. You know, I'm a basketball player. I played in high school, University of Waterloo. Warriors! I, um, I like to say that I soaked up all the fathering from my teammates, mm. secondhand fathering right? Because they'd be like, look, we want, we love you. Like, don't do it like that. Try it like this. And so I would learn from them and from my coaches. I would learn from, that's where I finally learned about, hey, 
yeah, you felt the effects of someone not showing up. Here's why you show up. And here's how you work with other people. Here's how you do teamwork. Here's how you push yourself beyond what you think you're capable of so you can achieve and expand your horizons, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's really, in terms of masculinity, that's really where I learned it. And, and really, if you read Saga Boy, the foil, the dramatic foil, I'm a lit geek here, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to use some literary terms. The dramatic foil for Al, my father, is my high school basketball coach, Barry Lilly who is the opposite. Like everything my dad does wrong, he does right. He shows up. He, he creates a safe place for me. Mm. He offers me love and respect just for the price of admission, just for showing up. He's like, I see you. I recognize you. I want to create. He took an interest. He would show up to my, my basketball games, show up to my music shows, show up to my like whatever it was I was doing just because I was doing it. And I had never had that experience. I'm the kid who like when I played at University of Waterloo, I would finish games. And if coach could make it, which is what I call Barry Lilly, my high school coach, I would see all these people with reams of family in the stands coming down to hug them and love them, console them if we lost, cheer them if we won. And I'd be like, why don't I have that? And, and so that's what I learned from my father is that I think the biggest lesson from those two father figures, because I acknowledge Barry as, as my father, as, as the father that did show up and he took that on, but is that you have to show up. You got to be there. You vote with your presence. Love is presence, right? It's it, Thich Nhat Hanh, the great recently passed away Buddhist monk speaks of that, how really all we need when we offer love is presence. It's just the uh, being there and being switched on and being mindful to that person. And, and that's what really I learned about it is that, you know, from Barry Lilly and from my dad <laughs> in the negative is that you got to show up. You mm -hmm. got to be present. When you're 11, your grandmother, Miss Exley, passes away. You are brought to Canada to live with your aunt Joan. Hmm. You write in the book that you fell asleep in a rainforest and a few days later woke up in a blizzard. Yeah. <laughs> Take me back to that time and what it was like for you adjusting to life in this small town in Northern Ontario. Woo. So Northern Ontario, let's talk, let's give the people some geographics about what we're talking about here. So if you're in Canada and you know where Winnipeg is, if you go east across the border into Ontario, about an hour drive or so, that's where we're talking about. Now, if you're from the States and you know where, I don't know, Duluth, Minnesota is, it's like you go across the border, then you go like five hours in drive to the west. So it's the northwest. And it's known for the wind. They call it the Nor'wester. So when I arrived in that blizzard, this wind is just howling outside like a demon in the bluffs. The lakes are all frozen by December. Snow upon snow upon snow. Biggest thing for me were icicles. Let me tell you, Tara Henley, I had never seen ice outside of the freezer 
do anything but melt. And suddenly there was this ice and it was not melting. I was mesmerized for it for weeks on end. I couldn't believe it. But of course I was traumatized as well. Like imagine all the things we think of that define who we are, the house you live in, the people who raised you, the people you grew up with, the food you eat, the language you speak. Imagine all of that just gone, ripped away from you. And the weather difference and the fact that we moved in, the, in December, which was like, if you wanted to start difference, that's the time. The weather just reflected the dramatic change of having everything you believed you understood about what the world was and who you were in it, gone. So, and, and biggest of this was my grandmother, Miss Exley. She passed away, which is what triggered the whole moving. And so we were shocked. We were traumatized. My brother was sent to boarding school. I was fascinated and terrified by this brave new world that had such people in it, to quote Shakespeare. But, you know, the interesting thing is that when I was a kid in that little colonial schoolhouse in Trinidad, the only white face I'd ever seen was Queen Elizabeth II looking down from the schoolhouse. And then I got to Northern Ontario. I was maladjusted. I got into fights. I yelled and screamed and cried. I threw tantrums. Nobody cared. I was really good in school in Trinidad. I was exceptional. And so when they came, when I came here, they were like, well, you were doing everything at a grade 10, 11, or 12 level, but you're actually only aged for grade six. So we're going to put you in grade eight. <laughs> and so I was misadjusted because, I mean, bad enough being the only weird Black family in the town, in the little village of Wabagoon, and then later Sioux Lookout. But I was also traumatized. And I was also now in a grade where grade eights don't care about someone that's 12 years old. And grade sixes were all in someone else's class. And so I was literally isolated from the beginning. Plus, my Aunt Joan was a Bible thumper and would dress me in like like these church boy sweaters with the shirt under it. And, and I was definitely geeky. So it all added to this feeling of isolation. But the one constant was when I went to high school, like two years before everyone else, a little scrawny, like 100 pounds wet little chinny kid. I went to Queen Elizabeth II District High School. So that was my first cue that, whoa, there's something going on that's bigger than me here. Because how can everything change but the same white ladies staring down at me when I go to school? <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned for that one. And so, yeah, that's what that period was like. I got into heavy metal, much to the terror of my Aunt Joan, who thought that if there was ever the devil's music, it was definitely that. But mostly it was just a loneliness to be real. It was a loneliness against an avalanche of change. Mm. And that loneliness, I mean, the sort of rootlessness, I really felt 
a real understanding of that feeling that you were expressing in the book. And throughout your adolescence, you moved around quite a bit. As you say, you know, you the things that give people bearings, parents, language, community, those things were gone. Mm. There was a moment where you were staying with a family when Aunt Joan was away, and you got to see what this family looked like. And you write that it felt as if I had been dying of thirst and someone gave me a taste of water. And that longing for family is a theme in the book. And I I think something many people will relate to in this time of like fragmentation and social isolation. How do you think about that now with a bit of distance? Wow. Great questions. They told me you were dangerous. Now I know why. (laughs) Um, I can see why the CBC is out to get you. Your questions are too good for them. <laughs> yeah, the that's such a great point. Like I, in that moment, you know, we live in a time where I think the importance of having a father in a family is is probably overlooked and not not being important. And I had a lot of mother figures, like. I mean, it's great because, you know, women, there's always a woman that tends to take that on. But the father role is so crucial. It's so crucial. And I feel like for me in that moment, when I saw like a father who was firm, but encouraging, was involved and engaged, but, but also drew clear boundaries right and and i love the boundaries i was a wild kid cuz i never had that and when i saw the boundaries i was like yes give me boundaries give me rules give me structure and the incredible security and the internalized confidence that comes from that that presence and i feel like i've i've sought that my whole life you know And also what that seeking turned into was as an adult, it became really difficult for me to offer that to people that needed it because it was alien to me. And so if you multiply that by, I mean, Lord knows, millions and millions of people, you can see how the knock-on effect on society is. And by the way, I would argue that the impact on women of not having men like strong, present, available men, emotionally available men, you know, like forget a breadwinner, you know, somebody make money, but they're never there. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about present, engaged, emotionally available men. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, dear one, I am here for you. That is the mantra. And having, you know, being a heterosexual man, being a mostly straight man in the the 21st century, I meet the woman who didn't have that man when they're, and I'm telling you, wow, like it's a problem, you know? And so that's how I feel about it. I feel like, I feel like my life is just this microcosm of what happens in society and, and that's an ongoing trend, you know, families have kind of, you know, the nuclear family is fractured. It's common and fashionable to say that, oh, well, 
you don't need a man who needs a man, you know, you don't need a man, but what's that masculine energy mean? And it, you know what? It's irreplaceable. There's no facsimiles for it, which is the same as maternal energy. Like there's no facsimile for that. You cannot replace that. And that's been my journey. And I grew up without it and, and always longed for it, always craved it. And I found it where I could find it. And thank goodness I feel healed and available to bring that energy now. But I feel like I'm in a small percentile of people, you know, I'm in a small percentile of people. And, you know, I have a lot of brothers all grew up without their dad and all incredible fathers, Mm all incredible fathers. So I think the lack of it teaches us the importance of it, if you follow me. Absolutely. And I, this is something I wanted to ask you about as well. I mean, so the things that we're talking about right now, the family, you know, uh, marriage, masculinity, all of this, it's not necessarily top of mind in the mainstream agenda right now. And so when you look at the statistics I mean, just speaking about heterosexual relationships in particular right now, right. it does seem like there's a crisis here. So less and less people are marrying those who do marry later in life. Elite marriage has held pretty steady, but working class marriage completely fallen apart. Mm-hmm. We're also seeing the sex recession right now. It seems like there's this growing disconnect between heterosexual men and women. We've talked about this a little bit before, but what do you see as the status of things between men and women right now? wow hey what a topic what a deep what a deep ocean to dive into yeah you know personally i believe that it is a bit of a crisis because it's in flux the the things that have anchored sort of the relationships between men and women are are broken you know they're in disrepute they're out of style Right. They're like bell bottoms there. You, you, you laugh at someone when you see them doing it. And. And what is that shift? I think there's a lot of illusions that we believe in our society. I think there are a lot of things. I think working class people, first of all, are run ragged. Right. We're run ragged. We're not allowed time to think or be present. Right. Because we got jobs. You have bills, you got them kids, you got to be out there doing, doing your thing. And so I think, first of all, there is a financial, the system is designed to make us work, 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 work. And if you think about the decline of unions, right, because if we're mapping sort of where we were 40 years ago in terms of like working class families, unions were very strong. And, and there's a reverse correlation between unions being declining in strength and the gap between the rich and the poor, which by the way is increasing in our society. And so what that means is you have less rights as a worker. You have less stability in your job, which means you got to work extra, which means you can't be home. You can't be present. Weekends aren't weekends. You know, there's no weeknights for dinner don't happen. And so these are the core, again, presence is what makes families work, right? So now you don't have that presence because we're over here working. We got to put them hours in. And I think that's what's threatening working class families. 
I think also there's a mental health kind of component that isn't talked about, right? I think that a lot of us have been traumatized, a lot of us, by different things, right? And we don't have that presence to deal with it. I'm privileged to be the Black artist in residence at the school board that I graduated from and, and meeting young people and hearing them talk about their relationships. And there is a crisis of identity of who we are. There's a crisis of mental health and, you know, sexual assault is a massive thing. And uh, by the way, and I've talked about this and I talk about it in my book, it, it, because I'm a survivor of childhood sexual assault, it's not just women. Like they say like one in four women before they're 18, well, it's one in six men. So that means a lot of men. And, and for men, it's so demasculating that we don't talk about it. But think about it. That's millions and millions and millions of people. And we don't ever talk about it. In fact, more times if you mention young boys being raped, and here's one of the big fallacies as well, 45% are by women. So, the, you know, we, we're being told that men are perpetrators and women are, women are victims, which is true in, in many cases. But, you know, women are also perpetrators in, in almost half of one in six men before they're 18. And so usually when you mention that, people laugh. They go, ha ha, lucky guy. Right. But no, that's a child. Right. That's a child. And so that's just one example of these sort of hidden epidemics that I think, you know, working class people, I mean, first of all, you have such a spirit of resilience and keep keeping on and don't complain, no whinging, as they say in, uh, in England, no whinging. So you, you don't even acknowledge that you're hurt. You don't even acknowledge the pain. And then were you to acknowledge it, all your other working class people, well, they got to do their shift too. They're busy. They got to work. And do you have extra money to go get a mental health professional, even if you can get to that point? Is that supported in your job? Well, no, because you ain't got that union that would put, that would fight to put it in your in your benefits. So you ain't got that. You don't have money for this. So you suck it up, and you have a, a culture of self destruction, right? We we overconsume. We over. We overshop and get into financial debt. We overeat and our and our bodies go out of control. We we over smoke marijuana. We over drink. We over sex. It, well, not sex, really. We over consume porn, which is the which is why there is a deficit of sex. There's a recession of sex. Because the impact of porn is that which is just proliferated back in the day when I was a youth, you had to like, you know, maybe that one kid who was brave would shoplift one from the store and you just pass it around. You had to wait your turn. It might take you a month to get to the porn magazine. Now you just, we all walking around with whole like libraries of porn. We can custom make our fetishes in, in an instant. And so this decreases actually wanting real sex. But these are just symptoms of a disease which is rolls back to the lack of presence, which rolls back to the state of the working class, which 
used to be way more empowered, but is way less now. And the wealth gap increases. And as a result, the working class is, is not available for their families. And as a result, guess what? Families don't function as they should. And, and they're broken down as they should. And, you know, I don't believe we want it less. I believe we want it more. I believe we crave it. I, I have the honor of, you know, playing in my band is all women in their 20s and early 30s and my band and, and all their friends are my friends. And I'm like the big brother. So I'll hear their relationship problems. And then they'll ask me for advice, which I've learned to give very, <laughs> very, to be very careful and give <laughs> But, you know, there's a point where I come to them and I say, look, if I said to you that you can have whatever you want, however you want, exactly as much as you want in however way you want, and they would go, does that sound like an empowered woman to you? And they'd be like, yeah, absolutely. That is exactly the life I'm trying to live, my best life. I'm like, okay. But do you also want to have a relationship with someone that's loving, a partnership that lasts and is nourishing? Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely what I want. Of course, everyone wants that. And they don't see that those two desires are contradictory. Because one is a deep-seated human need for companionship, and the other is a whole package of illusions that they've bought into and is usually pushed by people who are trying to sell them something, sell them mm. self-help, sell them makeup, sell them high heels, sell them workout plans, sell them, you know, like self-help books, you know, courses on the internet, like e-commerce courses on the internet or get your Etsy together. And it's like, look, I'll quote the great philosopher Scott Whelan of Stone Temple Pilots, self-improvement is masturbation. and which again, like just like porn, it takes away from the real thing. If you want real engagement, what's real relationship? Well, it's sacrifice. It's sacrifice. It's giving up for the team. I learned that playing basketball. How to put the team before yourself. We got a real deficit in that quality. And so all our illusions about ourselves are selfish and self-driven. And being selfish is the opposite of what makes teams work. And so marriages fail. Relationships fail. Wow, that's a really <laughs> deep and comprehensive analysis. I, I, I really appreciate you thinking it through on that level and, and sharing what you've shared. I, I think it's a really important perspective. Tara, you know me. I answer in podcasts. I'm like... <laughs> Sweeping and epic, <laughs> but it's a great question. It's an important question. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not mad. Before we go, I, I want to ask you about how you're sort of processing this woke moment that we are in right now, which, you know, I've been very critical of. How do you think about this sort of woke politics that we've seen evolving? It's been critical of you, Tara Henley. <laughs> I profoundly believe, and this is like cornerstone for me, and my experience has taught me this, but I profoundly believe that the things that make us similar and the same are more plentiful 
and more profound than the things that make us different. That is a cornerstone belief. It's supported by science. Science doesn't even study race because it's like, it's such a, a, a small percentile of, of the genes, like a minuscule percentile of the genes that make us different. It's not worth studying in biology. So, which doesn't mean that it doesn't matter, but I come with the lens that fundamentally we are the same. And I think that's because I've traveled a lot because I came from Trinidad and, I, and then suddenly I'm in Northern Ontario. I've, I've lived around indigenous people, black people, East Indian people, white folks, like German folks, like French folks, English folks. And I'm like, you know what? I see the similarities. I see the patterns. If I were to say to you, hey, what do you, the goals of your life are? If I would say to any of those people, they would say, look, I want to, you know, I want to make some money. I want to have a career that I don't hate and hopefully I love. I want to be around my friends, be around my family, travel a little bit, eat some good food and, and grow old with people that love me. You know, and that transcends all these boxes we put ourselves in. And I don't feel like they're not important. Like, I love being a Trinidadian man. I love being a Black man. I love being Canadian. I love being an immigrant. But my Black skin doesn't define me. There's so many greater things. I'm a friend. I'm an employer. I'm an employee. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a performer. I'm an artist. I'm a creator. I'm a, you know, like I'm all of these other things. And that's what we're really fighting for. Right. I think, you know, the woke movement of the left is always trying to reduce us down to, you know, in my case, or my pigmentation, my identity, in my case, I'm obviously black. So, and I'm like, you know what, that's like the people who say, like nice racial stereotypes, like, oh, you're black, you must be a fast runner and you know, you're a great dancer. And you know, I always look at those things as just as offensive as if you tell me I'm lazy and wanna steal from your store. Because to me, in both cases, you are reducing me down to my skin. And I see that as like a very small part of all the things that I am. And what are we fighting for if not for, you know, choice is power. I always say, Tara, if you have choices, you have power. If you have power, you have choice. So I don't want to be reduced down. I don't want my choices limited by the left or the right or by anybody else. I want to be the person that chooses what I'm going to be. And that's what I feel about sort of the woke moment that's going by. I agree with the objectives. Hey, look, whether you believe in critical race theory or not, whatever you feel about it, it's an undeniable fact that the history of, you know, North America has been written by one side of the story. And we're having a moment where the other side is coming through and people are saying, no, 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 we want this power. And hey, what's more American than that? What's more Canadian than that? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. This is enshrined in who we are. 
And we've never fully been that. And we're trying to get to aspire to this ideal. And I love it. I feel like, I feel like what a great thing to have ideals that are so great and tremendous that you always have to keep striving to get to it. What a tremendous thing. What a blessing we have, right? And I just feel like on the one side, you don't get people. The reason why we live in Toronto and not Tehran is because we can have discussions and debate and, and we can convince other people of our ideas. And that's what I think the great casualty of this movement is. I, you know, whatever side you believe in, I'm not even getting into that. What I am going to get into is how we have the conversation. There are people dying in Kyiv right now and in Mariupol right now to fight for the rights that we have and we take for granted and pretend they don't matter. They do matter. People get on boats in Cuba on little, on little rafts and brave the Atlantic Ocean, sharks and waves and storms so that they can have these rights that we have. And we just kind of talk about them like they don't matter. Look, having debate is what it's all about, right? You know, this is what it's all about. This is what we're supposed to have. So we're supposed to have more conversation. And, and yeah, you know what? There are people that believe some ridiculous things and, and that's okay. We're allowed to have that. That's, that's who we are. This is our ideal that we're striving for. More conversation and the more, and let the battle of ideas go on. And so I didn't even really check the ramifications. I'm gonna talk about you, Tara Henley. I didn't even check the ramifications of you leaving the CBC. I didn't even really understand what was going on. I just read your article. I was like, I support that. Because again, I believe profoundly we are all the same and these things are the same. And so, and I believe in the rights and freedoms that, you know, I, I've been reading a lot of George Orwell lately, as you know, and Orwell, Orwell says, look, we know that there are illusions. <laughs> we know that it's very easy to point out how things are not fair. But we choose to believe in these illusions and illusions matter. And these are great illusions. Maybe these ideas about democracy and freedom and rights and, and freedom of speech and, and, and habeas corpus and independent courts, maybe these things are illusions but we believe in them. And that's why everyone wants to come live here because we believe in them and we're still in a struggle and it's a legit struggle to extend that to indigenous folks and black folks and brown folks who have never had it. And you know, and all these different identities because they are just like us. So they deserve to have that because they have something to give to this and they've been giving and it's not been recognized. So look, I'm all for that, but let's have more conversation. Let's not forget what we're fighting for. Let's convince people because that is the privilege of living in a democracy. It should be. Mm, that's a good place to leave it. It was. <laughs> Even though I'm a, I'm a, 
<laughs> Even though I'm a mostly straight atheist, I can't help but preach. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good hearing your thoughts. And there's so many different topics that I want to hear your thoughts on. So it's, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Terry. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 